0: Thank you, Mary. Uh, before I hop into the sermon, I do want to just mention a quick thing. Uh, starting next Sunday, uh, we're going to have a kind of a mini series, a little four-week series called "Finding Faith." And uh, over the course of those four weeks, uh, we're going to be exploring you know, what is faith, uh, what is doubt, what is certainty, uh, what is the gospel message itself. And so, over the course of those four weeks, that's the stuff we're going to be exploring. And uh, if you're if you're curious about uh, this, what, what is this uh, uh, this idea of faith or what is this idea of faith in God? What is it to have a relationship with Jesus Christ uh, over the next four weeks? We're going to be intentionally uh, investigating that and, uh, and, and and, you know, looking at it. And so we encourage you to come. And uh, we've been in a series in the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll be getting back to that uh, uh, in, in a few weeks. But the next four weeks is a series called Finding Faith. and hope you can uh, hope you can join us. So there's these classic uh, words that we often say on Easter Sunday, and we said them just a moment ago, but you know that that Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. Uh, Other language that is often used is Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Uh, There's these grand phrases that the church has, uh, we echo them all the time, but on Easter Sunday, uh, they seem to just carry a little bit more with them. And uh, they, they, they help us to, to focus our attention and to, and to think about who is this Christ and what is it that he uh, has, has done. And as we gather this morning and we consider this passage that was just read in Isaiah 25, I, I want to start off by asking, you know, wh- what do you hope for? What, what do you want tomorrow uh, to be like? What do you want the future to be like? How often do you think about that? You know, for some people, that's a really exciting exercise. Uh, they think of the future and it's like uh, eagerness, it's anticipation. You know, they look and they say, man, artificial intelligence and chat GPT and Elon Musk, like, you know, what, what, what are they gonna come up with next? And then for other people, it's a really anxious process and they say, artificial intelligence, ChatGPT, Elon Musk. What what are they going to come up with next? And for them, it's a really scary view of of the future. And you might find yourself in in one of of those camps where you look at the future and it doesn't cause your blood pressure to go up. It doesn't cause anxiety. You're eager. You're curious. Others uh, experience a lot of fear. Well, the Bible uh, it, you know, it, it's a collection of, of 66 books, and the Bible, generally speaking, is quite comfortable talking about the future. It talks about the future a lot. Uh, it talks about the future in the Old Testament. It talks about the future in the New Testament. It's kind of almost always talking about the future, often reflecting on what has been, but pointing us forward to what will be. Uh, the Bible is pretty invested in the future. Well, the passage that was just read was from an Old Testament book, a big Old Testament book, written by a guy named Isaiah. And Isaiah was a prophet of the Lord, and, you know, he was tasked with speaking on behalf of God. And he would speak to God's people, the nation of Israel. And he, uh, he was to declare what he was supposed to declare. He was to state what he was supposed to state. And if you are familiar with these 66, uh, the, 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 this large book of Isaiah, um, he kind of has these two general themes that he goes after. One is judgment. He, he looks at the people of God and he says, God, God mapped out before you what it is to have a relationship with him, what it is to walk with him, and you, you've rejected it. You, you've, you've resisted it. You've walked away from it. And because of that, there's going to be judgment. And he identifies some nations, Assyria and Babylon, and he says these nations are going to come and they're, they're gonna, there's going to be consequences for for your rejection of God. And so that's kind of like a, a theme throughout Isaiah's writing. But right alongside that, Isaiah is is pointing to, to hope. Right right alongside this this message of judgment, Isaiah is looking and saying, but there's there's also some good news. There's also some really good news. And as he talks about the reality of the coming judgment, he is consistently sprinkling hope along the way, right, right in the face of all of that bad news. Well, you just heard those few verses from chapter 25 read, and that's what I want us to take a look at uh, this morning. So if you did a quick flyover of this passage, you'd you'd see, and maybe you caught it as it was read moments ago, it reveals the things that people daydream about. It it reveals the things that, that, that people hope for. And it reveals the things that was happening in that point in time, and here we are in the year 2023, and we find out that we're still daydreaming about these same things. If you look at the stuff Isaiah points to, he talks about on this mountain, he says there, there's going to be a perfect meal. He says it's going to be a meal with food and drink. It's, it's going to be this wonderful, wonderful meal. Think about our culture. I mean, there is like Top Chef and Master Chef and Iron Chef. There's a whole channel called the Food Channel. There's the American Baking Show, the British Bake Off. Ba- baking shows, cooking shows, eating shows, like, they, like it, it consumes us. We're, we're all about it. We love talking about food. We love a good meal. We love an idea of being able, you know, like a lot of these recipes, you know what a Pinterest fail is, where you, you, you get this, you know, watch the show, and it's like, oh, that's how you make this. And then you try to make it, and it looks nothing like that at all. But you know what you're shooting for, and you, and you, want, you, you want to enjoy that. You want to taste that. The, the perfect meal uh, isaiah 25 is pointing us to, to perfect relationships it says all the people there's this sense of uh, they're, they're gathered together in unison there's a sense of peace togetherness united and if you think again of our mo- current cultural moment the endless books on how to on how to have good relationships on how to reconcile relationships podcasts whole podcasts just dedicated to the subject of relationships And if you're a TV person, you know, Bachelor, and we got The Bachelorette, and we have the Hallmark Channel, and there's this, you know, this constant exploration of what would a perfect relationship be like? You know, The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, they get like 30 people to pick from, and it's like, find your best one. And it's like this ideal, it's this idealized vision of like a perfect relationship. And we can relate to that just in our own lives. You know, today is Easter and not everybody, but a lot of people will try to have a family dinner for Easter and you might be looking forward to this afternoon and you might have some grand visions for this perfect table where you're gathered together to eat this perfect meal and to do it with your family in like perfect harmony, right? We're all expecting that. Perfect harmony? Yeah. The third thing that I'll point to here is, um, and maybe this is the top one but it's, it's beating death, beating death. You know, the idea of the fountain of youth or finding the Holy Grail, cryogenics, preservation of life, biohacking. You put this, like the perfect meal, perfect relationships, beating death. Can you relate to that? I mean, that, that sounds pretty good. That, that list sounds pretty good. When you think about this idea of beating death, there are estimated, and there might be more than this, but there's estimated 20 to 30 companies, mostly in Silicon Valley, that are fully invested. I mean, they are investing billions of dollars on reversing the aging process. Uh, the guy who started uh, Amazon, Jeff Bezos, he's, he's invested $3 billion in a company that is pursuing this, this goal of reversing aging. Of being able to try to beat death, Peter Thiel is a billionaire investor. He's connected to an organization called Methuselah, and if you're familiar with the term Methuselah, that's from the Bible. Methuselah was the oldest guy recorded in the Bible. He lived, and we find about find out about him in the Book of Genesis. lived well over 900 years old, and this billionaire, Peter Thiel, is invested in this company, Methuselah, and Methuselah's little tagline is, "We're going to make." 90, the new 50. So whatever you feel like at 50 years old, they're going for that at 90. There's these visions and these hopes, biohacking, the idea of, um, you know, some people ask, is the future robots or is the future humans? There's a lot of people that say, well, it's it's going to be a mashup. It's going to be human bodies, but we're gonna get uh, mechanical livers and mechanical hearts and mechanical lungs. And the term for that is called a cyborg. And that the future, that's what it's going to be. We're going to have uh, all of these enhancements. And there's company after company that's trying to figure it out. Uh, Maybe you even saw it this past weekend, uh, just a few days ago, there was a little article that made a prediction. There's an expert that made a prediction. And he said that anti-aging pills, for for the first time ever, will be available, and his prediction was, within five years. And what do they do? Who knows? Who knows what they do? Um, but they apparently, they reverse the aging process. The perfect meal, perfect relationships, beating death. I mean, the stuff that Isaiah twenty-five is bumping into is still of deep interest to us. Twenty-five hundred years after Isaiah wrote this, you know, you, you think about these things, and it's like it, they they kind of sound like our word flourishing. You know, we we love the word flourishing. Uh, There's a a, a guy who's on faculty at Harvard, Tyler VanderWeehl, and he is the director of the Human Flourishing Program at, at Harvard. And he describes flourishing this way. He says, one could imagine the joy of proving a mathematical theorem, or some other difficult problem, or listening to an organ fugue by Bach, he, he, he works at harvard so just be patient um you know whatever your favorite music is or, or the joy of encountering a long lost friend after a lengthy absence now imagine all of those joys simultaneously brought together like all, all of them at the exact same time a mashup of the intellectual the emotional the relational the spiritual the physical all of it put together all of it right the biblical word that we often bump into here is the word shalom Every system, every single thing working, everything right. Dr. Vanderweel goes on to say, in other words, flourishing is the state in which all aspects of a person's life are good. And he means like, good, good. And we long for it. So, so look again at Isaiah 25, especially those first few verses. He, he uses this idea of a feast. And the Bible often has, has a, a little hidden uh, strategy that the authors use. And they use an idea or a word almost like a hyperlink. And if you listen to the Bible Project, you're, might be, you might be familiar with them using that term. That thinking of various ideas or words or phrases in a Bible passage as a hyperlink and they use this thing, and they mean it, they mean that specific thing, but they also mean everything that's associated with it. So like, click on it, you know, expand it. Uh, An example uh, would be uh, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, and Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, those words are not original to Jesus. Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, and Bible scholars believe that when Jesus says, you know, all the Gospels, they give us this account of Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what's intended there is Jesus is using that language and saying, I mean that, God, why have you forsaken me? But I also mean, remember that whole Psalm? Remember all of Psalm 22? So yet yes, there's a sense of forsakenness. But if you know all of Psalm 22, there's also a confidence that God has not quit. That God has not abandoned him forever. And so, like, when Jesus says that from the cross, it's like a hyperlink. He means that, but he also means, remember, all of Psalm 22. And as we come to Isaiah 25, and he uses this idea of a feast, you could think of this idea of a feast as as a hyperlink. It is a specific idea, but it's also everything that comes with the idea of a feast. What, what, com- what, what is all the, the, if you were to unpack that idea, what, what is a feast? I mean, Isaiah is definitely talking about a feast, but he wants all of this other stuff to come to mind too. Feasts are a really big deal in the Old Testament. Feasts are commanded by God. You know, we've said this here before, that God looked at his people and said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to have a consistent pattern of having parties. I want you to have feasts. I want you to have these, these grand feasts, and at those feasts, I want you to remember me, and I want you to remember what I've done. And so he gives them this blueprint of having celebrations, of having parties, of having feasts where they would reflect and remember who God is and what he has done. So many dynamics going on at these feasts. But an easy example to point to in Isaiah 25 would be the hyperlink of wine, You notice he says, you're going to have this this meal and you're going to have meat and you're going to have wine. Why why does wine function so easily as a a hyperlink? Because especially at this point in the world, having wine says something about you. It takes a long time to grow vineyards. And then you have to make the wine. And then do you notice that two times Isaiah says it's well-aged wine. This is wine that's been sitting around. What is that indicating? That is indicating that they are part of a society that has rich and deep peace. They're part of a society that has prosperity and safety and stability. This is the people of Israel. They wandered around in the desert for all that time. They had a few glory years under David and Solomon, and then the kingdom has been falling apart ever since. And Isaiah says, no, you're, you're going to have wine, and it's well-aged wine. It, it, it's evidence. It's, it's an indication of a society that is stable and peaceful and prosperous. And so when, when Isaiah paints the picture of this feast, and he points specifically to wine, he's saying this is an indication of the condition of things. Not just that you found some bottle of wine, but that you have well-aged wine. You're in a society that is experiencing prosperity and peace, stability and safety. You're in a state in which all the aspects of a person's life are good. Don't you want that? Don't you want that? So that's what we hope for. Why do we hope for it? Well, on the one hand, we hope for it because it feels right. I mean, everything I just said feels warm. We could keep talking about that and keep elaborating on that, but it sounds right. But there's another reason why we hope for it, because we don't have it, because that's not the world that we live in. Isaiah here references brokenness and blindness. He says there's a veil over covering the earth. He talks about death and tears and reproach, shame. He's saying the world that we inhabit, that, that, that world is a, is, is a broken mess. That world has all kinds of problems. That is not a world where you look and say, oh, every facet of my life is doing marvelously. He says, that's not the world we're in. You know, this past fall, I was invited uh, to kind of a clandestine uh, pastor's retreat. It was real uh, vague. And um, it's, it's, it's with an organization called Compassion, and maybe you've heard of Compassion before. But like they gave us some details about this pastor's retreat. And they said, you know, after the COVID craziness and all that stuff, like we're we're trying to provide some respite for pastors, some space for them to rest and to kind of get out of the the you know the 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 run of the mill and all that stuff. And so they give us a little snapshot of it. They tell us it's gonna be in Wyoming, that all expenses are paid, and it's like, you know. When something's too good to be true you normally say it's not true Um, but yet every step of the way the details keep coming through and eventually we get you know the the, the, uh, the the plane ticket like a plane ticket's been purchased and we get the confirmation of this and the confirmation of that and we get all the travel details and the itinerary and all of these things and it seems like it's gonna happen. And so we have a little snapshot that it's gonna involve fly fishing, and it's in Wyoming, and it's all expenses paid, and that stuff, I mean, right there, that sounds pretty good. So I knew a little bit of what they said would happen. But when we landed, we actually flew into a, a airport in Colorado called Steamboat Springs. When we landed, from the time we landed until the time we left, it, it blew all of our expectations away. There's about 20 pastors there. Uh, I knew maybe not nine of them were from uh, the network that I'm part of. And every step of those five days were just filled with surprises and joys. And it was incredible. It was in the mountains. Um, there was horseback riding. There was fly fishing, although I never caught anything. Uh, there were beautiful, beautiful conversations with a whole bunch of pastors, many of us navigating the same kinds of uh, concerns and fears. And then feasts. Every, every night, this, this little, uh, it was an old dude ranch. And uh, every night, they just really prioritized putting on a feast for us. And so every night, we would gather around this large table and they would make uh, a, an incredible meal. And we would sit there and we would share. And there was a guy who would host those times and just invited us uh, to be more and more vulnerable. And as those few days went on, every night the vulnerability just kept increasing and it was so life-giving. We, we sat around this large table and we ate and we drank and we shared. And then we went out to a fire and this fire was beside a lake which had a river at the base of a mountain in the middle of Wyoming, and I haven't shared the best thing yet. There was no cell phone coverage at all, none. They didn't have Wi-Fi, no access at all. It was pretty incredible. A beautiful place. Kind of sounds like Isaiah 25. But as good as those days were, I mean, I actually said, like, it felt like time stood still in some ways. Like The days felt long. But guess what, those five days still ended. That's, that trip still came to an end. And on that fifth day, we all loaded up and it was about a three hour drive from that dude ranch back to the airport. And as we drove out of that, that property, got about 45 minutes down the road and I'm in a suburban with about four other pastors and about 45 minutes down the road, we start hearing all of the notifications pinging on our phones and there are five pastors in this suburban and uh and we are getting simultaneously we're getting five days worth of notifications texts and voicemails and as we realize what's happening um the conversation starts you know should we dare check our email you know before we ever hit the airport We felt the weightiness of of five days' worth of questions and challenges that our five congregations were facing. Uh, Before we ever got to the airport, two of the guys in in my vehicle needed to make pretty urgent phone calls to address some significant concerns in their congregation. All the ironic, joyful, restful, all those dynamics, which were so, so good, and they were real, and I'm so thankful for them, but they all dramatically changed in like 45 minutes. And we were back to real life you know hopped on an airplane came back and started the process of trying to trying to catch up can you relate to that kind of a thing you know maybe you've had a glimpse of some great level of joy or rest or nourishment for your body for your soul maybe you've had slivers of that kind of peace maybe you've had the best time with a dear friend maybe you've had the most incredible vacation everything seems so good Everything seems so wonderful. But what always happens? Reality strikes. The meal ends, the vacation ends, the day at the beach ends, the trip to the mountains ends, and then you have to come back to real life too. The health problems, the financial problems, the relational problems, the personal failures, the car problems, they're all waiting right there. The darkness, The blindness, the brokenness that Isaiah is referencing, we we, we experience it in this life. You know, our best moments don't seem to last too long. And hard things never seem too far away. But it gets even worse. Because while the world is broken, the Bible also tells me that I'm part of the problem. That the brokenness isn't just out there, The brokenness is also in here. The the reason it all can feel so empty is not just that that the world's broken, but but that I'm broken. That this idea of uh, what the Bible calls sin, which is rejection of God and rejection of, of his good way. It's evident all over the place, but it's also evident when I hold up a mirror. And when I look at my own life and I look at my own decisions and I recognize that I run from God and that I reject God and that I'm part of this brokenness, I'm contributing to it. The people who know me best know that well. This brokenness, this reproach, this shame, this guilt, the rebellion, the sin, all of that stuff that Isaiah says, here's, what, here's what's going on in our real world, in our world. I'm part of that. I'm, I'm culpable. I'm responsible for that. And sin has consequences. Chief among them is separation. That separation, it, it, that's, it's death. When the Bible says that sin brings death, it means that it brings separation. It brings separation between me and God. It brings separation between me and others. It brings separation between me and myself. Sin brings all of that And it is evident in the world. And it creates in us a recognition that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Things are not right. And if there was only a way to, quote unquote, keep the feast and get rid of all the brokenness. Well, what we hope for, why we hope for it, can we find it? How how can we find it? Well, in Isaiah 25, we are seeing absolute fulfillment That's the picture he's giving us here, emotional, psychological, relational, physical, all of it, shalom. We have justice, we have the healing of the nations, all kinds of things are going on in this passage. But how do we get it? How how could God bring about that? Well, I want you to notice that Isaiah says this. He says that the Lord, he uses that phrase several times in these few verses, is going to do something on this mountain. So he says in verses six and seven, he says, On this mountain, the Lord. The Lord's going to do something on this mountain. Well, what mountain is Isaiah talking about? If you read through the entire book of Isaiah, you'd find out that he's a little fixated on this mountain. He references it multiple times, and he's talking about Mount Zion. He just talked about it at the end of chapter 24, and he's revisiting it here in chapter 25. He is talking about Mount Zion, and Mount Zion is in Jerusalem. And as Isaiah thinks about what's coming in the future, what God is going to do, he looks and he says, the Lord is going to do something on this mountain, in this place called Jerusalem. And guess what? About 700 years after Isaiah wrote this, the Lord Jesus went to a cross on that mountain, and he took all the sin of the world with him. You know, Colossians chapter 2 tells us that when Jesus was nailed to the cross, our sin was nailed to the cross. That Jesus took it all with him when he went to that cross. You see, Jesus gave up his life so that you and I could have life. Now think about this for a second. Do you know that Jesus is the only person who has ever died voluntarily? Now you say, wait wait a minute, I know I know people who have died voluntarily. I've seen movies based on true stories. I know stories of, of military uh, personnel. I, I, I know I know stories and they're they're quite moving of people who voluntarily gave up their life. I don't want to diminish any of those stories. But what all of those people did was they chose the timing of their death. Or they moved up the timeline. Of their death every one of those people that you're thinking of we're going to die anyway because that's the human condition every one of us is going to die but that was actually not Jesus Christ's condition Jesus Christ voluntarily died Jesus Christ came and voluntarily died on that cross to pay for sin our sin my sin and sin has a price That price is death, and it is higher than any of us want to believe. And yet Jesus took it, not because he deserved it, but because he wanted to take it for us. The Bible is crystal clear that on that mountain, Jesus died for us. But that is not the end of the story. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus does what Isaiah says is necessary to have that kind of perfect, life-giving, eternal feast. Jesus killed death. If you notice in this passage, what Isaiah says is that the Lord on that mountain, verse 8 says, he will swallow up death forever. That's what he's going to do. He's going to come and on that mountain, he is going to deal with death. He is going to kill death. Jesus swallowed death so that we don't have to. He tasted death so that we could taste the sweet feast that our souls have been longing for our whole lives. You know, Dr. Tyler Vanderweil. I mentioned him just a moment ago, the guy who said that flourishing is like a mashup of all the joys you can think of, uh, the intellectual, the emotional, the relational, the psychological, the organ fugue by Bach, you know, that guy. Well, he goes on to say... That if you took that, took that mashup, like recognize, okay, that, that's, that's a vision of flourishing. This is what he says. If you took that mashup of all those good things and then amplified it by a hundredfold, it is still kind of a poor description of what the final Christian vision of true flourishing in communion with God is. Or to steal one of my favorite movie quotes from the movie Meet Joe Black. If you take all that, the best intellectual experiences that you've ever known, the best emotional experiences you've ever known, the best physical experiences, the best relational experiences, the best spiritual, all of it, and you put it all together, then, here's the quote, multiply it by infinity and take it to the depth of forever, you will still have barely a glimpse of what we're talking about. Whatever it is that you can put together, whatever mashup you can come up with in your mind, whatever that situation that I was in in Wyoming, multiply it a hundredfold, times it by infinity and take it to the depth forever. It's not even close. It's not even close. The final vision, what what Christianity is offering through the person and work of Jesus is not even close to anything that we can imagine. This is all analogy. The best feast with the best wine and the best food? That's good, but it's it's just an analogy. It's just an echo. It's a shadow. You can't put it into words. It's better than that. The resurrection of Jesus wins the feast to end all feasts. I'm just going to go rapid fire here with a few of my favorite quotes about the resurrection. This is from Tim Keller The resurrection is not just consolation, it's restoration. Somehow, we get it all back and more. Consolation is just like a hug. Restoration is actually getting it back. Gavin Ortland says God is going to hit rewind not only on our rotten corpse, but on everything rotten and everything broken and everything ugly. Tolkien said, is everything sad going to become untrue? And the answer is yes, indeed. Jonathan Edwards said that the message of the Christian life, the message of the gospel, is that our bad things turn out for good, our good things can never be lost, and the best things are yet to come. C.S. Lewis, at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, he says, here's what we're going to realize. When all of our adventures in this life are over, and we die, we are going to enter the great story Which goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better than the one before it. And we're gonna realize that our whole life here was just the cover and the title page to that grand story. You see, the worst case scenario for the Christian is life together with God in a world where there is no sin, no tears. Do you you notice? Isaiah says that he's going to wipe away all the tears. Who does that? Who's the last person that's wiped tears off of your cheek? That's a pretty intimate relationship. Most of us probably think of a mother figure who has all the hopes and anticipations of the best things for their children. And when they see them crying, they want to wipe away their tears. And this says that the Lord is going to come and do that with his people. And so there's this future of no sin and no sorrow, no sickness or death. Isaiah is giving us a glimpse of the future that Jesus won for us when he conquered death. In Revelation chapter one, this is what Jesus says. I died, but I am am alive forevermore. And I now have the keys of death. I've got them. (laughs) Those keys are mine and the gate is open. Boy, do I have a feast for you, an eternal feast. I mean, this this is our homecoming. This is what we've longed for. This is what we hope for everything made right sometimes they're, they're, we're going to sing a song in a minute called uh homecoming and i've been listening to that song a lot over the last couple months and there are times where i'm just driving down the road and i i mean i'll drive by a uh a situation where it's a, it's a beat up old car or a, a diseased tree or a pothole have you ever seen those here yeah and and it's just like like i have honestly been moved to tears just recognizing like God's going to make it all right. That, that's renewed, and that's renewed, and that's made right, and that's made right. And there's some houses of people that I know who have, are going through terrible, terrible things, and I drive by their house, and I think, like, all of that's going to be made right. It's all going to be made right. That's the homecoming. It's the invitation to gather with the people of God in God's presence, and it's what our souls have been longing for all along. You know, verse 9, the last verse of this passage, I love the way that the NIV translates this. And it's on the screen behind me. But this is what it says in the NIV. Surely this is our God. We trusted in Him. And He saved us! Look, I don't care how familiar you think you are with the gospel. I don't care how much confidence you think you have about what's going to happen when you die. I can promise you this. If you have run to Christ... When you die, he is going to save you, and it's going to be a stunner. It's going to be like my trip to Wyoming times infinity. You got a little sense of what's coming? Oh, but it's way better than you thought. It's more, you're going to be stunned. I'm going to be stunned that he actually did it. We put our faith in him, and he did it. How? Through the person and work of Jesus. When Jesus swallowed death, he opened the door for all of us to eternal life? Have you run to the only one who can actually swallow up death? Who can tear the veil off of this world that blinds us and binds us? Man, the invitation is so wide open. All you have to do is see that Jesus did it for you. Now we go to the table every Sunday and we're gonna do it again today. Our practice is to come down the middle aisle, take the elements and head back to your seat on the outside aisle. If you're a child of God, man, this meal makes all the sense in the world because this represents the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, broken and spilled for you. Jesus went to the cross and rose again to win this future. This meal makes all the sense in the world. If you're not a Christian, there will be prayers on the screen, and we would invite you, instead of coming to get these elements, stay in your seat and receive Christ. Cry out to him and talk to him. Communicate with him about this good news of who he is and what he has done. And if you're not ready to come to communion when your row stands up, there's more space in our aisles or in our rows and people can climb over you. It's not an inconvenience. You are free to stay in your seat until you're ready uh, to come. So there's prayers in the bulletin. There's prayers on the screen. We invite you to consider these words as you come to the table. Our service will please come. Let's pray. God, thank you for this good news about Jesus. We thank you for his work on the cross on our behalf. But God, we are so thankful that the story does not end there. That the story continues on to that three days later when Jesus rose again and he conquered sin and Satan and death and all of our enemies. And in doing so, he wins for us the feast of all feasts. The feast of eternity, the gathering where everything is made right. Shalom, flourishing in your presence as things were meant to be. God, we thank you for this good news. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.